Good morning. Uh, the reading today is taken from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 18 to the end. And if you're reading from the church, uh, looking at the church Bible, it's on page 638. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. By the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet and steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Thanks, brother. Great. It is great to be able to teach the Bible. Uh, it's one of the things I love to do. I've been enjoying uh, the WLF uh, conference this last uh, few days. Uh, one of my favorite illustrations out of, uh, do you know Charles Schultz, Peanuts uh, character, Charlie Brown? One of my favorite illustrations about this issue of having vision. See, see, what vision gives you? I'm off script right now, okay? I'm, I'll get back on script in a minute. What vision gives you? Well, two, several things. Two things particularly. Vision gives you focus. You, you need to have focus. Otherwise, you're going to drift. If, you, if, you, if, you, if your leadership team here, if my leadership team in Lansdowne doesn't have focus around what the vision is, you'll simply drift. You'll become, I don't know what you'll become. You might become just a little Christian holy huddle. So vision gives us focus. It gives us intentionality. It also gives us measurement. Here's the Charlie Brown illustration I, I love, which is the exact opposite of the, of the point I've just made. Um, Ch Charlie Brown's in his back backyard, as the Americans say, and he's firing arrows at the fence uh, in the backyard. And wherever the arrow lands, he walks over to it and begins to draw circles, concentric circles, around where the arrow has landed, and his best friend, Peppermint Paddy, whatever it is, or Lucy, asks him, Charlie Brown, what are you doing? Why are you doing it that way? And Charlie Brown says, well, you know, this way I never miss. And so many times in church leadership and church life, we simply let things drift. We, if, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. You realize that, don't you? <laughs> So what are you aiming at? That, that's the thing. What, what's, what's the vision that's driving you personally and as a church? I, I shared, you know, our, our kind of current vision aim, which is uh, from our neighbors to our networks and across the nations. And, and that's good, and that sounds fine, but here's where we get to the Bible now. So open Proverbs 4 with me. How do you move from vision to delivery of the vision what you need, what we need, are values. You see, it's all well and good having a great vision. You need values to underpin that vision. Values to get you where you're headed. Because values turn vision into a reality. So that it becomes more than just a, a nice motto. And I want to explore with you... Uh, today, just one 
value, which is part of what I call the DNA of discipleship. I want to try and unlock the genetic code of a disciple of Jesus to show us what the values are that are fundamental to our identity as those who follow Christ. And, and the value comes out of that text that uh, Yvonne read from Proverbs 4, verse 23. Here it is. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. You see how, how your vision, everything you do, everything you aim at, stand for, flows from this value, particularly this morning, the value of a a guarded heart. Now, now you know, you, you're good Bible people, that the book of Proverbs is, is part of the, the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's a book full of wise sayings. Sayings about how to look at the world, uh, how to lean into God, how to, how to get life right. Now, you know, I know, that wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge. They say, don't they, that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Wisdom has to do with the application of knowledge. Yeah, It's knowledge with feet. Wisdom walks us through life. It equips us to make good decisions, to establish helpful relationships, to manage our money well. You see... The, the, the book of Proverbs, in a sense, asks questions. Do you want to know how to be a better parent or a better employee? Do you want to know how to control your tongue? Then you need the wisdom of, of, of the Proverbs. But before any of those tips on the art of successful living, we need this. You know how the book of Proverbs begins, virtually? First chapter, seventh verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where God's little book of wisdom starts. For the true goal of life, please hear me, folks, the true goal of life is not successful living, but knowing God. You see, you can have a great life with a promising career, with wonderful relationships, you can have good health and a happy home, and you can still miss the whole point of existence. Knowing your creator is what it's all about. And so the beginning and ending of wisdom means to fear God. Now, that's not about being scared of God. The fear of God is the deep uh, awareness that the whole of life is, is to be lived in his presence. That everything I am, all that I do, needs to be integrated around God. God has made me. God's made the world. So he knows how things work best. So if, if the goal of life is wisdom, and uh, if to get wisdom means we must fear God, then what's going to keep us wise? Well, here's where our text is, is part of the answer. Guarding your heart above all else. Guard your heart. Of course, in the Bible, the, the heart is not that internal organ the size of a grapefruit weighing around 11 ounces, beating on average 72 times a minute, pumping enough blood around the body a thousand times a day to fill three super tankers in one person's span of life. 
The heart, in biblical understanding, is the seat of our personality, the command and control center of our desires and decisions. It's here in the heart that our values are shaped and the course of our life determined. So here's my first big takeaway point for you. The heart contains the resources for life. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The heart contains the resources for life. Now, God is the source of all life, including our own. Whereas the heart is the, is the resource, the channel that, that, um, that processes our emotions and feelings. It is, if you like, the artery that carries our attitudes and behaviors. It's the well which, which feeds our mind. That's why the writer says here that guarding the heart is life's number one priority. Above all else, keep your heart. Protect and monitor what goes into it. Because here's the thing, we live out what's in the heart. So as we gain control of life's inputs, so our outputs will be more God-shaped. We've all been, all preachers in the last couple of weeks have been quoting the Queen, left, right, and center, in every message, the Queen's quote from Christmas broadcast in this year. One of the most compelling quotes that I've read of the Queen in the last couple of weeks is this one. She says, For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. Now, you see, the heart is where that framework is worked out. Let me illustrate it in this way, that the heart in your life and mine, uh, it, 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 it functions, it operates rather like the remote control for the TV in your living room. We, we, we turned up two nights ago to stay in a house in Rubina we've never been in before. And you know what it's like when you go to a, to a new house, you don't know where anything is and you don't know how anything works. Uh, and we arrived quite late, it was dark, and we, I wanted to see the news. I'm a bit of a news thing, really, news hound, really. And so I shouted out, where's the remote? And there were three remotes. One, I think, for the TV, one for the skybox, probably, and one for the music system. But I wanted the remote that controlled the remotes. You see, in our house, he who has the remote has the power. And we have one remote to control them all. In this house in Rubina, I just couldn't find that one universal remote controller. In, the, in media technology terms, they call it the point of convergence. That's what we're all working to, towards. And in our house, uh, the, 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 the remote control that we've got controls not just the TV, but the DVD, the skybox, the sound system. It even gives you access to network router, which controls other aspects of, of the house, including our heating system. One device to rule them all. That's the heart. Yeah? The heart's a bit like that. It's the point of convergence for all our human faculties. That's why we have to guard it. Because your heart manages everything else about you. Everything you do and think flows from your heart in biblical understanding. Because the heart contains the resources for life. So... 
As my doctor said to me the other day, how's your heart? That isn't just the most important physiological question of life. It's the most important spiritual question of life. How's your heart? How are you doing? Make sure your heart is in good working order and that your batteries don't need to be replaced. That's point one. The heart contains the resources of life. Here comes point two. The heart carries the weight of love. Listen to every word there. Your heart carries the weight of your love. That is the why of our text. If the heart as the resource of life is the what of the text, then here comes the why. Love is the reason. You have been made to love. Love is the gravity of your soul. It is the pull, the weight of your desires and wants. Now, this idea of love theologically as a kind of force of gravity actually comes from a brilliant North African bishop called Augustine. He lived fourth century, and he famously said, you've probably all heard this statement on many occasions. Augustine said, you, Lord, have made yourself and you've made us for yourself. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Tune into that. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Notice what the great theologian Augustine is saying there. Our hearts are restless, not our intellect. You see, Augustine shares the biblical view as the Proverbs does, of the centrality of the heart. That to be fully human, we need to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us and for whom we're made. You are designed as a human being to move towards God. You see, what your, what my restless, thirsty, hungry heart seeks is not in the first instance knowledge, but relationship. The heart carries the weight of love. No. Truth, reality is uh, that the heart which has not found its rest in God may take me, you, in all sorts of wrong directions towards other loves. But all of those alternatives tell me something inescapable about our humanity. I am made to love, to want, to desire. Listen, I cannot not love. The issue is not will I love. The issue is who will I love? What will I love? Because whatever it is, whatever it is in your life, everything in your life and mine will pull us towards that love. It's the force, the gravity, the weight, you see, of love. 
Now, the next time you, you're in Bournemouth and you want to take a dip in the sea and you've got your inflatable, I don't know, ball or whatever with you and you try to push it under the water, what's going to happen? It's going to pop up, isn't it? It's going to pop up. It's going to force its way up to the surface. Don't wait until you come to Bournemouth. Try it uh, later this week with your rubber duck in the bath. Push your rubber duck beneath the water. See what happens. You see, <laughs> that inflatable ball that you push beneath the waves is restless. It's got a weight. It will push itself up from under your feet or your hands. It wants to be floating. We, on the other hand, when we go into the water and try to swim and float, we sink <laughs> because our weight pulls us down. Now, here's Augustine's point theologically. My weight is my love. It carries me. It pulls me. You are what you love. You are what you love. In a very famous speech to university students, the American writer David Foster Wallace, not, not a Christian, he wrote the book Infinite Jest. David Foster Wallace, talking to students, observed this. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. Do you see how Augustine's point is Wallace's point? Is the point of our text. To be human is to love something ultimate. I, I was talking two weeks ago as part of my preparation for the Wales Leadership Forum event this week. I was talking with David Yegnazar. David is the fairly young exec director of Elam Ministries. Elam works to resource the Iranian church in the Iran region, in Turkey and Afghanistan as, as well. David, remarkable things are going on, as you may well be aware, in Iran. Obviously, the little window into that for me as a pastor was seeing all those people from Iran being baptized just uh, six or so weeks ago. But I was talking to, to David off, off, kind of off camera, wanting to record the interview for WLF. And by the way, if, if you want to see that interview, and also another one uh, we did on Thursday night, then go to the WLF, um, shameless plug here, go to the WLF um, website, and, and, and I, I, it'll be available, I'm sure, very soon, the Thursday interviews with, with David. Anyway, before we went live and recorded, um, I asked David to explain to me why he thought that in spite of the tremendous suffering and persecution that goes with being a disciple of Christ in Iran. We only this, what, last weekend, last two or three days, we've seen how the kind of Islamic regime is very hostile to any kind of freedom of expression, especially to uh, Bibles and churches. So I was asking David uh, to explain why he thought that despite the fact that the Bibles and churches are banned in Iran, 
why the Christian church there is the fastest growing church in the world today. And he said something remarkably powerful in response to that question. And as a bloke, when I heard it, I thought, really? But then I, I think I got it from working this text over the last week or so. He said, I tell you why. The reason why the church in Iran is growing so fast is because Iranians fall in love with Jesus. That's not the kind of thing that a bloke like me you know, says easily. But he's, he, he's right. He's bang on the money. That's Augustine's point. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. Iranians fall in love with Jesus. Because, as that second main point is saying, the weight of our love carries us. You are what you love. Yeah? Iranians fall in love with Jesus. You are what you love. You see, here's something we need to grasp about our humanity because it's the key to unraveling what I'm calling the DNA of discipleship. We are more than intellect. We are more than thinking things. We are more than brains on sticks. Life is not just about downloading information, accumulating data over the years. Our humanity is is not at root. You are what you think, but you are what you love. Now, please don't mishear me. Many of you know me. The life of the mind, for me, is incredibly important. Using your intellect is profoundly part of our humanity. To be a disciple of Jesus, we have to win the battle of the mind. If you want to live straight, you've got to think straight. So, So don't mishear me. I'm not saying the mind is irrelevant or unimportant. It is but you are what you love, not what you think. This idea in a church like yours, in a church like like mine, making disciples, that's the vision, should be driving us with our big hearts and our big maps. But, But making disciples is not simply about getting people informed with information about data to do with Jesus. It's, it's about more than information. It's actually formation. You see, being a disciple of Christ is not like sitting in a school classroom learning Latin grammar, as I had to, or the periodic table, which I never mastered. Being a disciple is the product of walking in relationship with Jesus. Our hearts are captured by what we fall in love with. Now, informing the intellect is one thing. But you know what Jesus wants to do in your life? He wants to form your loves. Or just inform your mind. So here's a a working definition that you might want to take with you into your small groups uh, or your study programs in the next several months. Here's a working definition that I'm working on with my church in Bournemouth. Discipleship is the formation of the God-shaped habits of the heart. I'll say it again because there's a lot packed into that. 
Discipleship is the formation of the God-shaped habits of the heart. Because friends, there is a battle going on in you and in me to form habits that are God-shaped. Because right now, in there, in you, in me, there is fierce competition in my heart to replace God with a thousand other rival gods, loves. Listen again to David Foster Wallace. He nails it. Foster Wallace says this, Worship money and things, and you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant you in the ground. Worship power. And you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. You know, last week I was offered a rival love to God in my heart. I was driving along the dual carriageway into Bournemouth. It's called the Wessex Way. It's a nightmare of a, of a road when, when it's all the tourists come into town. The Wessex Way. And along the Wessex Way, I was in the, I'd been in the gym. I was going home. And along the Wessex Way, this dual carriageway, pinned to the fencing on the roadside with this massive advert, a big silhouette in black of a guy at the top of his golf swing. Huge silhouette of a guy on top of his golf swing. And the, the little kind of caption, the tag under, uh, underneath was, fit golf into your lifestyle. I was being offered a rival love. Presumably the golf club was recruiting new members for the coming season, suggesting that a round of golf was something that people driving past should make room for in their lives. That advert was feeding what I call the hub and spokes view of life. What's that? Well, it's this, that I'm the hub, I am at the center, and I decide the spokes of my life. Now, one spoke could be golf. Another, the garden. Yet another could be God. You know, you just take LF out of golf and you put in D and you've got Fit God into your lifestyle. And friends, I think many of us treat our faith and our relationship with Jesus a bit like we do with our golf hobby or our gardening hobby. We fit God into our... It's the hub and spokes view of life, you know? I call the shots. My heart decides... By the way, our text this morning is not saying that when the habits of my heart are God-shaped, I can't enjoy a good round of golf, or I can't enjoy a nice glass of wine, or I can't enjoy music or friendship. That, that, that now the habits of my heart have to be taken up only with church stuff, with religious stuff. That, that's not what the text is saying. Is actually saying that when God is the hub of my life, when God has my heart, then, then the spokes of life that come from the God-shaped heart 
make the pleasures of life even more meaningful and even greater. I, I love that quotation from Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell, the great you know, runner and rugby player, played for Scotland, ran in the Olympics. You know that statement? God made me fast, and when I run, I can, I can feel his pleasure. That, that's, that's God at the center, uh, the God-shaped heart. So that we can enjoy life to the full. How does, how does the summary of the commandments begin? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Why? Because your heart carries the weight of your love. That's why. Thirdly, finally, lastly. The heart creates the direction we travel. It resources our life. It carries our love. And lastly, it creates the direction we travel. Listen to the... Listen to the verses next to our text. As they are describing a journey in which speaking and seeing and walking are set by the compass, the orientation of the heart. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet. Be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Do you you see the image? Speaking straight, seeing straight, walking straight are determined by the compass of the heart. The needle of my heart will point to the magnetic pole of my desire. The pull. The gravitational force. Because to be human is to be on a journey towards a destination of my dreams. Just as you cannot not love, so we cannot not be headed somewhere. We live leaning forward, moving towards our vision of the good life. Whether that's the vision offered by magazines like Cosmopolitan or, or The Horse and Hound or Vogue or that, or that golf advertisement along the dual carriageway. They're all saying to us, this is where true happiness is found. This is where you should be traveling. This is the vision you should be working towards. Those of you familiar with the musical Les Miserables will recall Cosette, the abandoned abused street orphan, remember? Who in her imagination captures a vision and sings. Don't worry, I won't sing it to you. There is a castle on a cloud. I like to go there in my sleep. Aren't any floors for me to sweep? Not in my castle on a cloud. You see, Cosette's heart longs, wants, desires a vision of life beyond her misery. Folks, we all desire a better world than this. We desire a kingdom. We desire a castle on a cloud. But just like the God-shaped hole in the heart of all of us, which we can sometimes try to fill with rivals, with alternatives, so people will travel towards alternative visions of the world they want. 
I was looking at the Gospel of John the other day again, and the first couple of chapters where Jesus is beginning to pull the team together, calling his disciples to follow him. And what's fascinating about the way John describes those dialogues, those encounters, is, is he frames it in terms of Jesus' question to the disciples. It's the question that, that, that struck me that I hadn't seen before. Jesus asks Peter, Andrew, James, and John this question. What do you want? What do you want? Not what do you know. Not even what do you believe. But what do you want? The Lord Jesus knows the DNA of discipleship, that it has to do with what the heart wants, what it it desires. It's the core of our identity. It is the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. What, my friends, today do you want? That's Christ's question into your life. What's, What's in your heart? For discipleship is about how we curate our hearts. But here's the problem. We are born with a heart that though it's designed to know God, keeps looking for life in the wrong places. That's the problem of my heart and yours. We keep looking for life in the wrong places, in God's substitutes. So what your heart and my heart need is a a new heart. What I need is a new heart, a forgiven heart, a clean heart. I don't just need a course of uh, religious statins to lower my, my uh, spiritual cholesterol level. I need a divine heart transplant. And here is the amazing truth. If you haven't woken up to this already, through faith in God's Son who died and rose for us and by His Spirit who lives in us, we can experience that new heart, that new birth. God takes the heart of stone out of us and gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that wants to love him and do the right thing by him. Now, I'm not saying, folks, that we'll always want what God wants for us, always love him more than any other. But in the new birth, God gives us a new desire to love him with a heart for him. And so this morning, as I land this particular plane, Jesus is asking you to follow him. And his question is, what do you want? Do you want a new heart? Do you want to love me? Do you want my kingship over your life and my kingdom in your world? Yeah, I'm sure many of us did see, as Sue was saying, the state funeral of the queen just on Monday gone. Over the last two weeks, the word sovereign has been used an awful lot, hasn't it, in in our media coverage, filled with images of majesty and power and authority, symbols of sovereignty as a queen is mourned and as a new king is proclaimed. And I, I was struck on one occasion when they came to the accession council, the privy council, it was Westminster Hall, was it, and or St. James Palace, one of these extraordinary occasions full of pomp and ceremony, struck by the grand fanfare announcement by the man who looked like he he was wearing a red carpet with with a kind of peacock on his head. He made this announcement. It was a prayer, a kind of oath prayer. Whereas it has pleased Almighty God to call to his mercy our late sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth of blessed and glorious memory, 
with one voice and consent of tongue and heart, publish now and proclaim that Charles III become our only lawful and rightful liege Lord by the grace of God of the kingdom of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland and of and of his other realms and territories. King, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. Now here comes the bit that really struck me. Beseeching God, by whom kings and queens do reign, to bless his majesty with long and happy years to reign over us. My point, my point is this. I was fascinated by that phrase that we were praying to God, by whom kings and queens reign. There is still in our culture an echo of a Christian view of the world in which we recognize that there is a king of kings who reigns over all the kings and kingdoms of this world, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the King who came to earth to die and rise for us, who devoted himself to establishing his rule of love in our hearts so that our restless hearts might find their rest in him. Jesus the King, who lives forever and ever and who will bring us one day forgiven home to God. In 1501, Michelangelo, the great Renaissance artist, took an uninspiring block of marble and for four years began to chip and chisel away at this cold chunk of stone until he got the desired figure he was after. David, the biblical character, King David, the shepherd boy king, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. David, if you've ever seen the sculpture, is regarded by, by most to be the greatest sculpting masterpiece of all time. Now, when Michelangelo was asked about the secret of his genius creation, how did you do this? How do you take a, a block of marble and, and make David out of it? Michelangelo said this. It's simple. I just removed everything that was not David. What is the DNA of discipleship? How does God, how do God-shaped habits form in my heart and yours? It is simple. God's spirit chisels and chips away in my life and yours, chips away everything that is not Jesus. For the heart of a disciple of Christ is to be shaped and formed and inspired by the person of Jesus. That's the template, the model that God is working to, only it's not simple, is it? Because your heart, my heart, is stubborn. Says Jeremiah the prophet, deceitful above all things. My heart resists God at so many levels. But that's God's project with us. His vision, his aim is to create disciples of his son, Jesus. Disciples who are driven by their heart being guarded. Let's pray as the group come onto the platform. Sovereign God, write your word on our hearts. Capture us again 
for Jesus and the gospel. Chip away everything in us that isn't Jesus. May we respond by faith and through the power of your spirit, may we guard our hearts above all else because they are the resource of life, because they carry the weight of our love and because they determine the direction of our life. May our heart be for you and for you alone. Amen.